Well, good morning. I, I realized I didn't introduce myself earlier. For those of you who don't know me or are visiting C3, my name is Chris Henson. I'm one of the elders here. Seth and his family are gone this week on spring break. They're enjoying the time it up. Um, I don't know how many of you managed to get away this week who are in here. I'm imagining that we've got many who enjoyed spring break plans that are still kind of getting back home and unpacking bags and looking at tomorrow and going, okay, back to reality, right? So uh, this morning we are going to be in Philippians chapter 4. That's page 982 on the Bible there in your row if you want to go ahead and turn there. Seth will be finishing up our sermon series through Philippians Next week, and then the weekend after that, is Easter. So we're almost at the finish line with our study through Philippians here. And then once we get back from Easter, we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk, which is great. Most of us probably have never read that, let alone said it out loud. And so you'll get an opportunity to do both those things over the course of April, and that will be awesome. So, <coughs> excuse me, when our... Older two kids, right, we've got four now, but when we only had two, our older two kids were younger, uh, one of the things that our family used to do on a fairly regular basis was go and get froyo. So we'd go out for dinner, and then we'd go get froyo afterward. Or it was a birthday, so we're going to go get froyo. Or someone lost a tooth, so we're going to go and get froyo. Or it's Tuesday night, and we're going to go get froyo because you don't really need a reason to go and get froyo other than... It's there, and it's good, and so we're going to go get it. And so we would drive over to Orange Leaf here in the Woodlands, and we would go and get frozen yogurt. Now, if you've ever gone in your life to get frozen yogurt, you know that the best part of getting frozen yogurt is the sample cup, right? That's the best part of going. You could, you could ignore everything else, and as long as you get the sample cup, that's fine. For those of you who don't know what the sample cup is, it's this tiny, like, one-ounce paper cup, and you use it to sample all of the Froyo flavors. And so we would walk into Orange Leaf, and they always had a little basket. This is pre-COVID era, so, you know, sanitary. Um, they had this basket of sample cups. Right? And you could go and grab them, and you could sample as many of the flavors as you wanted to. Now, my kids, you know, they weren't, like, really excited about all the different flavors, so they'd sample one or two. And I just felt like it was irresponsible to not try all of the ones that were out there. I mean, clearly someone said this is a a decent flavor that human beings would like to eat, so I needed to verify that to be true. Right? So we would go through, and we'd get sample cups. And by the time that you actually bought your ice cream or bought your Froyo, you've already had like a snack worth of Froyo. So one time we go into Orange Leaf and the sample cups are gone, totally gone. And there is a well-meaning teenager behind the counter who's been given the corporate byline policy of, we don't give sample cups out anymore. I need to assist you with getting whatever sample you would like. And I'm sitting there going, you got to be kidding me. I mean, it's already humiliating enough that they make you weigh your Froyo. You want to talk about American, you know, fat fast food culture. I mean, it's like, how much does this Froyo cost? Well, it's eight bucks because you literally put a small child's worth of Froyo inside the cup with gummy worms and Oreo crumbles on top. Great, thanks. Appreciate it. That's humiliating enough, but then to have to have the Froyo sample cup babysitter going around and making sure that they don't give you too many samples is just way too much. So I proceed to tell my kids, I don't think Sheridan was with us for this this uh, particular trip, but um, uh, I proceed to tell my kids, you know, it, it's going to be okay. You know the kind of Froyo flavors that you like. Dad knows the kind of Froyo flavor he likes. We're going to be completely fine. And 
at that point, I see my then five-year-old look at me, and these tears are just welling up in her eyes. And I'm going, oh, no, please don't do this. Please don't ruin Froyo for us today. Please don't. And she goes, Dad, if I can't sample all of them, I don't want any of them. And, like, proceeds to lose it. And I'm sitting there looking at the teenager behind the counter like, you caused this. This is your fault. I'm going to bring back a five-cent sleeve of sample cups, and I'm going to bleed your machines dry. And how are you going to feel about it then? You're making my daughter cry over here. I mean, it was literally so bad that we had to leave and not get Froyo that day, which created even more tears. So why do I tell you that story? Well, what we're going to see in the book of Philippians this morning is topic of contentment. Contentment. And in this particular instance in Cadence's life, it was discontentment. If I can't have it all, I don't want any of it. The things I'm missing out on are going to shine way brighter than the things that I actually have. And that's something we all struggle with, don't we? We all struggle with this. It's a universal problem. It transcends tax brackets and continents and ages and cultures. And it's not just about having more stuff or having more money. We can be content or discontent in areas of our life like health or comfort or reputation or affection or relationship. Contentment is ultimately about being glad with what we have, even if we are uncomfortable or lacking. Contentment is not about settling for a bad situation or resigning to the idea of things getting better. Contentment is being unaffected, being unaffected by abundance or scarcity in our disposition, joy, and character. So, how are you doing that? Doing with that this morning, C3? How are you doing with that this morning? If you're squirming a little bit at the thought of having to wrestle through contentment this morning, here's the good news. You are in really, really good company. Because this guy right here got handed a sermon passage, thank you, Seth, if you're watching, that is aimed at a topic that is probably my number one sin struggle. I stink at contentment. I am constantly aware of all of the things that could be better. But we'll wrestle through this together, won't we? So, if you're squirming this morning, you're in good company. But here's the reality. This is where growth takes place, isn't it? Coming face-to-face with areas in our life where we may struggle. And then reading and reminding ourselves from the scripture that Jesus offers us hope and a different path forward that is ultimately far more rich and far more soul-satisfying than what we previously had. And look, if this isn't an area of struggle for you this morning, then let it be a reminder and an encouragement to you to hold fast the contentment that you do have because we live in a world where contentment comes and goes so easily. So let's turn our attention to Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10, and we'll explore this together. Paul says there, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. So just to zoom out big picture, right? One of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians in the first place was that the Philippians had sent Paul a financial gift 
through Epaphroditus, who we saw in chapter 2. Epaphroditus came, he brought the gift, sent back this letter with Epaphroditus. And the Philippians, in this financial gift, were supporting Paul in his ministry. And so now in verses 10, where he says, I rejoice greatly that you revive your concern for me. Verse 14, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. He's thanking them. That's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, I rejoice that you were concerned, but you didn't have a chance to. Verses 11 through 13 here, he's saying, it's, it's okay if you hadn't met my needs, but verse 14, I'm, I'm glad that you shared in my trouble. So that's, that's the idea here. This is a thank you that Paul is giving. And I want to point out a couple things here before we really get into verses 11 through 13, which is kind of the, the core of the, the, the passage here talking about contentment. First, I want you to notice verse 10, why Paul is rejoicing. It says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that you've revived your concern for me. See, Paul is not rejoicing because they gave him a specific kind of gift. He wasn't sitting there going, man, you know what I really need? I really need you to give me X, Y, and Z, and that's what's going to make this work. He's not praising them for the specific kind of gift or the specific dollar amount that he got. In fact, we don't even see in the scripture here whether the need that Paul had was fully met by the Philippians. There's no mention of that. What verse 10 shows us is that Paul rejoices because the Philippians' giving of the gift demonstrates that they have love and concern for him. He's celebrating, what Paul is doing is he's celebrating that in their love for Jesus, the Philippians looked at Paul and said, we are willing to do what is needed and potentially even difficult to show Paul that we love him in the Lord. And that raises a really good challenge for us as a church because Many of us, like the Philippians, we've learned this as we've studied this book so far, the Philippians were living in an affluent city, in an affluent culture. Many of them had means and had status and had privilege, and they had been blessed with an ability to be generous. And I won't steal Seth's thunder because he'll talk about generosity next week, but I think if we can borrow from Paul's idea back in Philippians chapter 3 that when everything that you have, Time, money, resources, anything of value, if you can view those things as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus, it enables you, as the Philippians did here, to be disproportionately generous to the needs of others. That's what the Philippians have done. They've gone out of their way to see that Paul's needs were addressed and that they were able to step in and help, and in doing so, they set an example for us of how we can collectively and individually approach the known needs of others in the body of Christ, which is not that we ignore them or set them aside or go, someone else is going to take care of that, but that we sit back and say, it's bothersome to us that there might be those among us who are in a position of need, and we would not be able to help. That's what's going on here with the Philippians. But it also raises a question for us on the other side, which is, are you sharing the needs that you do have with the church, right? So you've got the Philippians on one hand going, we're aware of needs, we see needs, we have an ability to mobilize to meet those needs inside the body of Christ, so we're going to be disproportionately generous, even to the point of being inconvenienced to address and to care for our brother, Paul, who we love in the faith. But then you've got Paul on the other side, 
Here's Paul. He's super spiritual, right? He's super Christ-like. He is the, the poster child of what it means to walk with Jesus. And you know what Paul does that most people in the American church can't do? He said, hey, guys, I actually have needs that I'm unable to meet, and here is what they are. I'm not expecting you to do anything with it, but you just need to know that these are out here, right? We don't do that in the American church. That's hard for me to do. I don't know how hard that is for you to do. But to show up and say, hey, things are not okay. Finances are tight. Marriage is bad. Kids are hard. Work is non-existent. I have needs, and I don't know that you can address them. I'm not asking you to. I'm praying that the Lord would step in. I'm praying that the Lord would work. But I also know that I've been brought into a body of people whose love and affection for Jesus should cause them to seek to help where they can. And so here they are. Instead, a lot of what we get in the church is, I'm fine. I'm blessed, brother. Right? That's not where I'm ultimately going to land with this whole sermon. But, but here's Paul. And he doesn't just secretly hide the fact that there are needs that could legitimately be met by those in the body of Christ. And I want to suggest to us this morning that as we see this in the context of a thank you, that there's beauty and blessing in the church being a place where needs can be addressed and met and communicated and prayed for. But that's hard for us, right? We don't want to do it, right? It requires that we humble ourselves and we accept help from other people, which many of us were taught. It's a very American way of thinking that you just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You don't ask people for help. Sometimes you'll come across as needy, or maybe you'll come across as a burden. That's ultimately a selfish attitude, isn't it? That's ultimately a selfish attitude, right? It's thinking so highly of yourself that you won't allow others to esteem you highly enough to meet your needs. I'm too good to let someone else consider me good enough to spend their time, their energy, their effort, their money on. I don't want to inconvenience them. I don't want to burden them. Right? Or maybe we don't like to tell people our needs because we operate in this culture of expected reciprocity where if I help you, now I'm on the hook, or you're on the hook to help me, or if you help me, I'm on the hook to help you out. I owe you something in return. Or maybe it's because the need that we have may highlight an area in our life where, where we've been missing it or it's been a shortfall. Maybe we haven't done a good job with our finances. Maybe we haven't done a good job in our marriage or in our parenting. Maybe we've made some bad decisions and we need someone to step in and help out and we're embarrassed to do that. I think the reality here is that we see that even a guy like Paul, who is the super spiritual guy of the New Testament, is willing to look at people and say, here are needs that I have. Whether you can meet them or not, I don't want to fail to communicate faithfully to the body that these are needs that I have. Listen, one of the greatest marks of the church should be the way that we mobilize to care for one another and the world around us because we hold loosely to the things that we have and we do things without expectation of return. I can't even begin to speak to how well our family's been taken care of by this church in particular when we brought Holden home from the hospital two months ago. I mean, we've had meals prepared, kids watched, groceries picked up, people who prayed for us, sought us out, people who've been like, you look a little tired. You seem aloof. What's going on? We've had people who've brought us coffee. We've had people who've taken their days off to come over to the house and help meet needs for us and more. And they've done it out of generous and overflowing hearts. They've been 
doing it because of love and care for us, because there have been needs that have been present and and frequent and and needing of assistance. And we've been happy to receive that help, knowing that it's not done because people feel obligated to us, but because people love us and they love the Lord. And that's a natural and a good response to people that you love inside the body of Christ. And it motivates us to be encouraged to do the same thing for other people. I wonder this morning how life would be different for us as a church if we really took these principles true in our relationships, if we really lived these kinds of thoughts out in our community groups, if we were willing to be vulnerable about needs, and, and, and then upon hearing needs from other people, if we were willing to be inconvenienced to show honor and kindness to one another. I wonder how this would look if we mobilized to meet needs in our neighborhood. I, I, I don't know about you guys. We, we have a neighborhood Facebook page. I try not to get on it too much because it just makes me angry. Of all my neighbors, you can pray for me in that because people, people get nasty. But it's not uncommon to see someone say, I need someone who can help watch a dog. Does anybody know a babysitter? Does anybody know anyone who can help uh, install a ceiling fan? Does anybody know someone who can help mow a yard? I've got you know, this thing going on over here. I need someone who can come check on you know, my kids or this or that. And I just wonder sometimes what it would look like in our neighborhoods if, if we as believers were the first ones to raise our hands and say, hey, we're gonna, there's a need over here, and hey, we're, we're uniquely equipped because God has been disproportionately generous to us to be disproportionately generous toward you. And so I think, I think we see here in this dynamic in Philippians, and we'll jump into contentment, this, this dynamic of meeting and communicating needs and the beauty of what can happen in just a simple thank you when the church seeks to operate in this way toward one another without strings attached. So where does contentment fit into all of that, right? Well, what enabled Paul in Philippians 4 to say thank you to the Philippians here, but to hold loosely to this expectation that that need would be met, was that he had learned that Jesus was sufficient for him. What enabled Paul to say thank you and genuinely mean it and, mean it and say thank you, Philippians, your gift moved the needle enough that I'm going to devote time and energy and pen on paper to tell you thank you, but at the same time, if you didn't do anything, It wouldn't affect my love for you was that he had learned that Jesus was sufficient for him. Not that he didn't have real needs. Not that he didn't need those needs to ultimately be met. um, But that he recognized this simple truth. That if the only thing he ever gained was Jesus, that would be enough. If the only thing he ever gained was Jesus, that would be enough. Similarly, when we are in a position of need, or if we're in a position to meet a need, there is an underlying affectedness by the situation we find ourselves in that should mark our lives as followers of Jesus because we have him. So, is there a contentedness to life that comes from the Lord that as we grow to be more like Jesus marks our life? I think so. And so this morning, that kind of contentedness, that trajectory, that path, is what I want us to see here as we seek to be people who live contented lives. So if you look back at verse 11 with me, first thing I want us to see about contentment this morning is this, that contentment is not based on our circumstances. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 11. Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then middle of verse 12, he says, In any and every circumstance, I've learned to be content. It's very easy in life, church, to say 
I'd just be happier if blank. How do you fill in the blank this morning? Get your elbow ready, spouse, friend, partner. How would your spouse or your best friend fill in the blank this morning? Oh, yeah, you think you'd be a lot happier if you had this, but (laughs) we all know that's a sham, right? I think we operate that way. We say, I'd be a lot happier if blank. I'd be a lot happier if I had a bigger house. I'd be a lot happier if my kids listened more. I'd be a lot happier if my marriage was in a better spot. I'd be a lot happier if the college football selection committee would not continue to put the same three teams in every single year. Come on, Aggies. Um, I'd be happy if my uh, money was more abundant, if I made more, if I had more in the bank account. I'd be happy if I wasn't struggling with this ongoing sickness. I'd be really happy if the dogs next door would stop barking at three in the morning. I'd be really happy if I could just have more friends. I'd be really happy. I'd just be happier if this burdensome relationship that I have, maybe it's a parent that you're taking care of or a coworker who may showing up to work feel like you want to stab yourself in the eye with a letter opener. Maybe it's a neighbor. If that thing would just get easier, life would just be better. The real question is, if that thing was resolved for you, would it really bring you the lasting satisfaction that you needed to never go a day in your life without feeling discontentment again? No, of course not. Does that mean that we shouldn't want those things to change? Absolutely not. We should desire for problematic and difficult and hard situations to get better. But in our gain of whatever it is that we would fill in the blank, is it not also true that there was always be something else that you felt was lacking? And it goes both ways, right? It's really easy to focus on this in a negative sense, but it goes both ways. There are many people who've been able to get comfortable in life, and not for bad reasons, able to get comfortable in life because you've been successful in your career, you've invested well in your family, you've made good financial decisions, you've been able to enjoy a relative degree of ease as a result. That's not bad. But contentment and comfort are not the same thing, are they? Contentment and comfort are not the same thing. If everything that you had was stripped away, would you, amid the real, natural, difficult feelings of loss and frustration, be able to still say, Christ is sufficient? If I never gain back a single thing that I had, I'm not lacking because I have Christ. So I'm sorrowful for the things that are gone, but I'm not lacking. Because I have what is ultimately worth far more than anything I lost. I don't know that I would be there. It's easy for me to say that. I don't know that I would be there. Contentment is not based on our circumstances, good or bad. Second aspect of contentment is this. Take a look back in this verse with me. The second thing I want us to see is that contentment is learned. What do I mean by that? Verses 11 and 12 again, twice, Paul says that he has learned to be content. I've learned to face plenty and hunger and abundance and need. Um, We bought training wheels for my three-year-old yesterday because it is time for her to learn how to ride a bike. And what's great about learning to ride a bike is that 
outside of the initial bumps and bruises and scraped knees and frustration that comes with trying to figure out how to do it, you never really unlearn how to ride a bike. Do you? You don't. I mean, I remember this was a few years ago. I was in Washington, D.C. on a business trip, and it had probably been a decade since I'd actually been on a bicycle, like a real bicycle, not an exercise bike or anything like that, like a real bicycle. And we're looking at how we're going to get around the, the capital, and they've got all these bikes for rent that you can pull off the rack and, and ride around. And so we decided to do that. And outside of the first 20 seconds being like, okay, apparently uh, this is a little bit, you know, unstable compared to what I'm used to. Of course, it was the bike's fault. Like, the seat's not high enough, you know. has nothing to do with my motor skills, right? Like, I, within 20 seconds, we're buzzing around Washington, D.C. because you just never unlearn how to ride a bike, right? I wish contentment was like riding a bike. I really wish it was. Contentment. I wish that learning contentment was just like, hey, we're going to have a couple rough years post-trusting in Jesus, there's going to be a lot of refinement that takes place, but hey, guess what? Five years in, you're going to be made in the shade. You're going to be cruising. Never deal with this contentment ever again. Jesus is enough. Yes and amen, Lord. Everything's great. Like, it doesn't work that way, right? It doesn't work that way. I wish it did. I wish we could be doing wheelies spiritually because we just got this down, but we can't. Learning contentment takes time, and it usually comes from experiencing situations where that need is pressed upon in painful ways. Usually contentment is learned through crisis. It comes from times of experiencing need. And in that moment, being faced with the reality, right? It's hard. Life is hard. This situation is hard. This relationship is hard. This situation is bad. I don't see it going away. This is difficult. Am I going to press into Jesus and believe that he's sufficient for me? Even though I may struggle at times with that, will I continue to come back to that? Or will I cast it aside and get bitter, get angry, get frustrated? It comes from times of great abundance in our lives. Where we're pressed against the temptation to fall into self-sufficiency instead of Christ-sufficiency comes from experiencing failures on both fronts. Not doing great when the crisis comes. We're having times of great abundance and forgetting the Lord and then having to remind ourselves, this is not how I've been called to live because what I've been called to live for is Jesus and he's better. And I missed that this time. There's grace for that and forgiveness for that. Amen. But the crisis will come again. We'll have an opportunity to learn. It comes from times where greed takes over, where discouragement takes over, where pride takes over, and we have to repent. I think the temptation for many of us, especially when we hit hard seasons, where it just feels like things aren't going our way, or we just keep taking licks and we don't come out on top, the temptation for us, many of us in those moments, is just to try to figure out, how do I just make this better? How do I just imagine like three months from now, I'm not dealing with this. That's all I'm going to think about. It's just this being better. Or the other temptation is to be so downtrodden and, and so sorrowful because of the difficulty that we're experiencing that we end up saying, I'm not thinking about three months when this is going to be better. I'm just thinking about how life will never get better. This is just going to be awful forever, right? 
And it's okay to be saddened by difficulty, and it's okay to be forward-thinking and hopeful in the midst of difficulty, but does your heart, despite those responses, still say, Jesus is enough? If this never gets better, and all I end up with is Jesus, whatever this pain point is, whatever this need is, plus Jesus, is that going to be enough for me to be content in him? Man, I want that to be true for me. I'm not. I'm so far from that. But I want to be unaffected by those kinds of things because I'm content in Christ. We have a friend who would remind us from time to time that when life sucks, you just have to sit in the suck, is what he would say. It's kind of a weird phrase, but it stuck with us. You just, you just, sometimes you have to sit in the suck and go, this is awful. But Lord, what do you want to do in the midst of this? This isn't better. I don't know when it's going to get better, but, but surely nothing that you ever do is purposeless. So what are you doing, Lord? He will allow you to experience hardship, church. He will allow you to be brought low. He will lead you through difficulty so that the end result is that you may trust him more. Even if the circumstance doesn't change. God is ultimately not about making our lives comfortable or easy or prosperous or enjoyable by the world's standards. And if that's you this morning, hear me. You may not see it right now. You may not believe it right now, but Jesus is enough. Don't lose hope. It may take time to get there. It may take counsel to get there. You may need to call Seth the elders, and say, hey, this thing is going on, and I can't get over this. What do I, I, I need help. I need prayer. This isn't just getting prayed away. That's okay. That's right. That's good. We just talked about the fact that in the church, we should be able to say, I've got this need. And it's not just for someone to put food in my fridge. I need someone to pray for me because my soul is in a dark spot, and my life is in a hard spot. And it may not happen overnight, but as much as it depends on us to remain focused on Jesus and believe that when everything else is bad, he's infinitely good and that he loves us and that he's for us, continue, church, to pursue him. Because in the trenches of the battle of contentment, deep and lasting unaffectedness because of Jesus can be learned. And finally, the last point about contentment is this. Number three, contentment, we've alluded to this, is rooted in Christ. Look at verse 13. Paul says, I can do all things through him who who strengthens me. Notice what Paul is not saying here. Paul wasn't willpowering his way to this kind of contentment. He wasn't smarter than all the rest of us. He didn't just have the kind of personality where it's just like, you're just kind of a go-with-the-flow kind of person, even keel. Obviously, this isn't a big deal to you. It's just your personality. He doesn't use any of those examples, excuses, whatever you want to call them. No, verse 13 shows us that Paul says, I can do all things. Really the idea in the translation here is, I can do all of these things that I just talked about. Being okay, being in abundance, and being okay, being in need, and being okay, being in um, uh, prosperity, and and being low, and and abounding, and facing plenty, and facing hunger. I can do all of that. I I can handle both sides of the spectrum. Because of him who strengthens me. Right? This is one of those Bible verses that gets completely thrown out of context, isn't it? Um, I remember being in high school and seeing all the guys in athletics with Philippians 4.13 on their letter jackets. If that was you or you're thinking about it, I'm sorry. I'm going to make fun of you right now. It's okay. But I'm like, dude, you're 5'6". You're, you're like a third-string linebacker on the JV team. Like, yeah, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, but you're never, you're never going to take more than two or three snaps a game. Sorry, bro. Like, there's no scholarship for you. I promise. Like, it, sorry, it's, it's just not there. Like, you literally can't do all things through Christ who, who strengthens you. I mean, contrary to popular belief, I can't bench press the moon. I would love to. 
That would be a pretty cool party trick, but I can't do it. I can't drink lava. Again, cool party trick, but not going to happen. I, it's the NCAA tournament right now. I can't go. Like I couldn't put on my Philippians 413 letter jacket and drive to Indianapolis and go out on the court during warm-ups and dunk on a college sophomore, right? I just couldn't do it. I'm too out of shape and too short, and I can't dribble a basketball. Like, it's not going to happen. Maybe if you give me a trampoline, but then when I land it, I'd roll my ankle and I'd be going to get an x-ray through Christ who, who strengthens me. Like, that's, that's how that would go, Right? I'm joking on all of that, but, 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 but the reason why is this. Paul is saying here, what Paul is saying here is remarkably not about him, which is how we tend to take that verse. It's about us. Our ability to do things through Christ who strengthens us. What Paul says here is, hey, Christ is the means of my contentment. That's the I can do all things through him part. And Christ is the mode by which it's possible. That's the who strengthens me part. The focus isn't on Paul and his ability. It's on Christ and his ability. It's on Christ's ability to lead us to a place of contentment in him in the strength that Christ provides. The end goal here is not that we put this on mugs and leather jackets and become superhumans that are capable of doing whatever we want to or whatever we put our mind to. The goal here is to become content in Christ even if our circumstances are less than super. To become content in Christ so that we aren't phased by seasons of abundance that want to puff us up or by seasons of need that can bring us low. And maybe that's the best news for any of us here this morning, including myself, right? Who really do want to get to a place where we can say, Jesus is sufficient for me. He's really all I need. Everything else is just bonus. The good news is to know that it is through Christ who strengthens you that you can learn contentment. Just like we saw in chapter 2 where it said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you to will and work for his good pleasure. It's through Christ, not through you, through your willpower, through your personality, through being smart enough or good enough or, or gritty enough. It's through Christ who strengthens you. You need strength in that. It's not easy for us. That we can learn to be content. To rely on his strength. My step in that is to remain focused on Christ, continue to hope in him, do good, do the bad. I don't know if you've looked around right now, but contentment is in short supply in our world. Contentment is in really short supply in our world. Whether you're at a park play date or sitting at a restaurant or at your office, you and I are surrounded by people right now even in this room, who are dealing with discontentment and dissatisfaction. People who are worried about families, worried about COVID, worried about the country, tired of divisiveness that they see from both sides of the aisle in politics or struggling with money or debt or wayward kids or unfaithful spouses. And what the parents that you sit next to at dance class and the people that you visit with in your community group here at church and what the coworkers that you go and get lunch with when you're at the office, need to see from us now more than ever is that when circumstances around us are less than ideal, we have an unwavering anchor in Christ that enables us to weather the storm. They don't need to see you be perfect in that. They don't need to see you be flawless. They need to know that despite your failures and your shortcomings, there is one who never fails, who is always there, 
who is always worth counting on, who provides us at the very core of our being a stability and joy and satisfaction that can't be taken away by the circumstances that we experience in this world. So that they, as they, they go, how, how am I ever going to get out of this? How is this ever going to get better? What, what can I do? They can look at you and look at me and see Christ and go, that's the answer. That's the answer. That's what I'm looking for. I don't need to change my circumstances in order to be content. I don't deserve for things to get better. I don't deserve happiness. I need Jesus. That doesn't preach as well when you're sitting across the booth from someone at Chick-fil-A and they're just telling you that life is hard. Surely you bear a burden. That's scriptural, Galatians 6. We ultimately say, remember, Jesus is better. Run to him, look to him, be content in him. He will meet the needs that you have. It's okay in the midst of difficulty and abundance and good times and bad to realize that those things are what they are, but Jesus is the anchor who pulls you through. He is the one who you can rest on, hope in him, so that whether the situation ever changes, you can find lasting joy and contentment in him. Contentment is ultimately rooted in him. So what do we do with all of that this morning, C3? I think a practical encouragement for us this morning is this. It's a good idea perhaps to start by just asking ourselves the question, where are we experiencing discontentment in our lives and why? Why is there discontentment in this area? Is it a sin issue? Is it greed or longing and and despair that has gone beyond the, the trusting of Jesus that no longer finds hope? Ask ourselves this morning, do I, am I experiencing comfort that's masquerading as contentment? And find those things and to pray through them and to begin leaning on Jesus and asking for his strength to fight against the temptation to gripe or to complain or to despair or to trust in comfort. Ask him to help us with the things that we want to rely on, like our success or our reputation that can prevent us from having a deep contentment in him. And let's recognize that As well, whatever needs we have this morning as a church, as a church body, that while we remain content in Christ, and whether those needs are ever met or not, there are opportunities for us to rely on the body of Christ for one another's needs. And we can be generous toward one another because Christ has been generous toward us. You know, the greatest way that Christ has been generous toward us, and then we're done this morning. The greatest way that Christ has been generous towards us What enables us to ultimately be able to come into this room this morning and say things like, Jesus is better. What enables us to come into this room this morning and look alongside Paul at a life that is built on contentment is the fact that Jesus, in the midst of our plight, instead of giving us what we deserve, put himself in the position that we were due to be rightful recipients of the wrath of God because of our sin. Instead, he took the punishment. He took the shame. He took what we deserved on the cross that we might be extended the offer and the forgiveness of hope that comes through salvation in Christ. And so this morning, wherever you're at in the the contentment spectrum, I'll be honest with you, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, none of this will ever make sense. You will find yourself time and time again trying to find something in this world that provides you lasting satisfaction. And nothing in this world is designed to do that for you. 
it will always disappoint you. But there is one who has removed every obstacle and every barrier that could potentially keep you from coming to him. And instead, he offers you forgiveness and hope. Turn to him today. And believer in this room, Christian in this room, if sin has gotten in the way, if apathy has gotten in the way, if laziness has gotten in the way of you coming to Jesus, know that he stands ready and open to welcome you back. The great thing about what we know of Jesus is that you have his favor. You have his favor because it was never dependent upon you in the first place. It was always dependent upon Jesus and his willingness to seek us out in the midst of our sin and offer us forgiveness. So let's run with hope toward those things as we get ready for Easter. Let's pray. Lord, I I desperately want to be a man who's content. And I'm not there yet. And so I'm praying, Jesus, that you would help me learn contentment. I I want to be able to say of my day that whether it was good or it was bad, whether I have plenty or whether I have little, whether I'm in abundance or whether I'm in need, if I have Jesus, I have enough. And so, Lord, I'm praying for your help in that. I'm praying for you to expose in my own heart where greed or discouragement or despair or comfort have caused me to not draw near to the source of life, the source of living water who can quench the thirst of my soul. And I pray for us as a church that that we would do the same, that we would do the same because, Lord, I really want us to be I believe you desire for us to be a church who comes into this place and lives life deeply satisfied in Jesus, both so that we can enjoy you and magnify you and glorify you, but also so that we can be released to go back out to our neighborhoods and our workplaces, to a world that is looking for something to satisfy them that they will never, ever find in money, in possessions, in relationships, because the answer is really found in you. So, Lord, empower and equip us to be people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and as a result, walk deeply with you. Amen.